0: Then I discovered that there is something called Freudian psychoanalysis. the center for that is University of Chicago. Wendy Doniger and her students specializing in Freudian psychoanalysis of Hindu deities, Hindu gurus, Hindu rituals, symbolism, festivals. So according to that theory, Sri Ramakrishna was a pedophile who abused Vivekana, according to the theory. So what has happened is, in my earlier Breaking India book, I introduced the concept of Afro-Dalits. It was still an experimental idea. They were taking Dalits and telling them that you are really Africans. And the non-Dalits are whites. And racism is how Indian society operates. And you are like blacks in India. And you should revolt like that. I wrote it in that book, but people didn't take it seriously in hindsight. They should have, we could have nipped it in the bud perhaps, but we didn't take it seriously. So now the Afro Dalit has become reality. There are professors at Harvard. There are very senior people in the American Academy. There are people getting with Pulitzer awards on the Oprah show books, which are New York times number one bestseller on this topic. They've also started applying American law on racism to Indians in this country. In this country, people like you. So there are are more and more local level amendments to racism law, which say that caste is also a form of racism. Harvard put it into their university bylaws. And many, many universities have adopted this. Which means... That if, if somebody says you are a casteist, you are you favoring others of the same caste, you are a Patel, you favor Patels. I can prove it in your, in, by doing a survey or you are Brahmin and you favor, favor other Brahmins or whatever, whatever their idea is. Then that is grounds for litigation, prosecuting you under the laws of racism in this country. That is so serious because the racism laws are very serious. So, Ashoka University is very proud that it is becoming the Harvard of India, but actually in a negative sense. And we have a whole chapter on Ashoka. And then there is Godridge Labs. And then there is Kriya University in the south. Then there is uh, Azim Premji has initiated some things. All these are separate chapters. And we are naming names. We are naming names. We are not talking in general terms that some people like, do this. It is not like that. We are quoting exactly what these people are doing. So when somebody tells you that uh, uh, Ahimsa and Vasudeva Kutumbukam means that you put up with anybody's nonsense and we are supposed to be passive, your answer should be that both Itihas, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, Bhagwan himself comes to teach. In one case, he himself does the fighting against Ravana and in the other case, he teaches and conducts the war. So fighting is a part of our dharma, being part of this. Defending the dharma, protecting the dharma is part of it. And ahimsa doesn't mean that you put up with somebody else's himsa. Ahimsa is not a unilateral disarmament.
1: Yeah, so just briefly about Ji. I've known Ji for more than half of my life. Uh, and uh, many of us have been inspired by his work, uh, his clarity about our dharma, and his uh, what he calls the, the uh, intellectual chaturya, uh, you know, efforts. Because uh, when you have clarity about dharma, it's very impo- it's very easy for you to face whatever is coming in front of you. He has done groundbreaking work in providing what we call what he calls purva paksha, which is the analysis of the other from the lens of the Indic perspective. So how our culture, a lot of times from a colonial perspective, everyone has looked at us and says, this is how Hindus are, this is how India is, and things like that. So he decided to turn the gaze, pioneering work in the 90s, and essentially challenging the citadels of power and saying, look, this is who we are. And one of my favorite books that he has written is, uh, besides Breaking India, is also Being Different, an Indian challenge to Western Universalism. It's a must-read book for everybody who, who respects dharma and dharmic cultures because it essentially turns the gaze on the other side. So he has done pioneering work on this and I'm very excited to have Snakes in the Ganga here today as well which he will talk about and it has already created a lot of waves globally speaking and now the North America tour has started and there's going to be a lot of programs going on. Uh, we also have the books on sale today. Uh, You can buy them for $25, and anybody who donates $500 today is, of course, going to be a complimentary uh, book for you as well. Without further ado, I would like to welcome Rajivji. Before we get started, I would also like to invite Panditji, and wife as well, um, and Pinari, Dr. Ji, for some quick dia lighting, so that we don't start any ceremony or any program without the dia itself. Unfortunately, we have an electric dia, so we will have to uh, do that. Adjectives. deepa jyoti para brahma like everyone to join with me in this prayer deepa jyoti para brahma deepa jyoti archana ardh deepo halatume papam sandhya deepo namaste om oh, shanti Shine. Shine.
0: Namaste, everyone, and thank you, Nikunj, for organizing this, for putting Kona together. Nikunj and I, as he said, go back way a few decades and uh, he's done some amazing work. I congratulate him, I support his work and would like all of you to join Kona, donate generously and help out, help this young man. The the reason being, I've been on a tour for 60 days, nonstop. India and then Canada, then Boston, then California, now here. And I'm now a little bit uh, worn out and sore throat and all. Too much, uh, too much speaking. <clears throat> so I need to rest a little bit. That's why I apologize after my talk in q and A, I leave. Also, I have a family medical situation at home uh, and I'm about an hour from home. So I will leave and I won't be able to stay for the entire event. I really wish I could. The, Primary work that I've been doing for like three decades now. I need to explain what's common. And each time I write a book, people say, oh, okay, now you're taking on a different topic. And so I've done nine books, but I'm going to do another 20 before I'm done, which are all starting. And these are not uh, new projects that I have to figure out. These are things that are already done. Research is done, first draft is written, and now it needs to be polished up, cleaned up, which takes a lot of effort. But they are all over the place in terms of what you see. But there's something in common, the methodology. What I'm trying to develop are algorithms. You guys, that's why I was asking how many tech people here. So an algorithm is sort of a procedure, like a cooking algorithm, how to make, you know, something. Or an algorithm to drive a car or whatever. There's two kinds of algorithms. One is, an al- a procedure exists. And we have to discover what it is. Like in physics, you try and discover... What's the algorithm for high tide, low tide? What's the algorithm for eclipses? What's the algorithm followed by an electron? How does it move? So discovering nature's algorithms is physics and chemistry and all of that. Social sciences try to discover the algorithms by which human beings behave. You're also discovering algorithms. And then there are whole different kind of algorithm where we develop an algorithm like we make a car it's not something in nature but we develop an algorithm to turn it into something useful so the discovery of algorithms that are out there is what I call purvapaksha, which means our opponent our opponent is behaving in a certain way and producing certain things that we don't with that we don't like we must deconstruct how this opponent works what is his algorithm so for example if you come across a lot of instances of bias then you want to figure out what is the algorithm by which this bias is being constructed what is the mechanism what's the reasoning who funds it that's also part of the algorithm What are the institutional mechanisms working to bring this about? What is their logic? What are they trying to achieve? All of that is the discovery of the other side's algorithm. So, one of the algorithms I discovered early, I was to figure out why is there Bias against Hindu Dharma in the media, in the Western Academy, in policy making, in schools. My kids were in Princeton Day School and we came across bias. I, I would take it up and they would say, but the textbook is written by so and so. So I took it up there. I found think tanks having, this is not Modi related. I'm talking about 90s, 30 years ago way back I found mockery in the media in TV shows a lot of it in government policies so then one had to figure out where is it coming from so when you research you find out I found out that the academic community had a lot to do with it because the academic community writes school textbooks the academic community gets quoted by media as experts the academic community populates think tanks so the algorithm went to targeted uh, the focus on the academic community then looking at the academic community I found that there are different schools of thought each generating its own bias some are doing it from a Christian theological point of view. And I went to the Christian, the seminary in Princeton, which is one of the largest in the world to see what they are doing. Got to know those people. Then I discovered that there is something called Freudian psychoanalysis. The center for that is University of Chicago. Wendy Doniger and her students specializing in Freudian psychoanalysis of Hindu deities, Hindu gurus, Hindu rituals, symbolism, festivals. So, according to that theory, Sri Ramakrishna was a pedophile who abused Vivekananda, according to that theory. According to that theory, when the reason Sri Krishna is often shown doing like this is because he is getting his hips back and he's a gay person. It's a homosexual pose. So they came up with all this complete nonsense against the Hindu goddess. Things that would not even be decent to talk about in mixed company or in front of children was in the school systems. And of course Freudian psychoanalysis says that I understand what you are thinking that you don't even know about. Unconsciously you're thinking like this. I'm, I'm teasing out your unconscious biases, your unconscious thoughts. You are unconsciously male chauvinist. You don't know, but I'll tell you. Or you are unconsciously racist. I'll tell you. So Freud figured that there is an unconscious level that the person is not conscious about, naturally, because it's unconscious. And the job of the doctor, through questioning, is to find out what he's, what he's like unconsciously and to educate. That is, he's doing him a favor. So these Freudian psychoanalysis said that we are helping the Hindus figure out what what is wrong with them unconsciously, which they don't know. And therefore, when they're angry, it's not natural. Just like a patient is angry when you tell a patient, you know, you are unconsciously like this, he'll get angry at you. He'll say, no, I'm not. He'll say, well, you don't know it, but I'm telling you, I'm the doctor. So the doctor has to be at a higher level of adhikar authority. He knows more about the patient than the patient knows about themselves. And that's how Freudian psychoanalysis works. It's very difficult to refute it because if you say, no, we're not like that. They'll say, ah, that's exactly because it's unconscious bias. It's in your unconscious, therefore you're saying like this. Very difficult. So you're in denial. So I had to, this is part of my figuring out what is their algorithm. So I figured one, one big algorithm is Freudian. Then I figured out there's a there's a huge biased interpretation of caste, which is another big algorithm. Hold center like in Berkeley, in Harvard, which focus on that only. Then I figured out there's another part of their algorithm, which has to do with the, a kind of a premise that Hindus are hating Christians and Muslims, minority religion. Then there's another big algorithm about gender. Hindus are very patriarchal. So this discovery of algorithms on how they construct hatred, dislike, negativity towards Hinduism. This is what I started calling Hindu phobia. That when I searched at that time, there were zero hits for Hindu phobia. So the original work is not coming up with a name because maybe the name was used hundred years ago. The original work is figuring out that this is the algorithm by which they are behaving. It is a discovery of the algorithm which happened, not coining a name. I could call it something else. I could have called it, you know, Hindu hatred or whatever. The, The name you give to the algorithm is not the important discovery. It's the discovery of what the algorithm is. How are they functioning? What is their logic? Only after you know the algorithms of Hindu phobia, and there are multiple. There's Freudian. There's there's gender bias. There's caste bias. There RN Arya-Niyamian divide. There is you know half a dozen different uh, lenses they use. And only after you de- uh, decoded this their algorithm, are you able to give a response. Otherwise, you'll just be emotional. You'll just say, you know, uh, I don't like this and you will shout at them. But once you know what is the algorithm or algorithms by which they are biased against you, then you can intervene and say, Ah, this is a flaw. This is incorrect assumption. Here is my response to you. You can build a counter algorithm to bring them down. So that's how systematically this work has been done. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this, is people often react to is in a superficial way they see something they don't like and they start reacting to it but unless you go into the algorithm of the other side it's like a doctor cannot treat you unless he knows what's the algorithm of the disease this is a virus how does the virus work how does it survive how does it propagate and once the pathology of the disease is known that's the algorithm of the disease then only the medical science can say, okay, we'll intervene, we'll block it here, we'll kill it there, etc. So, like you fight a disease by understanding the pathology, so also the social disease of Hinduphobia, you have to understand its whole pathology in order to counter it. And that discovery of the pathology is, is, is a kind of reverse engineering how it works. That's the, that's the key to uh, making progress as a scholar. Now, because I have been doing this kind of algorithm research all my life, I just, dis- each book is a, I've written nine books. Each book uncovers a major uh, discovery about how our opponents are operating. So the battle for Sanskrit is a whole separate thing. The whole, the book on artificial intelligence I came out with a year and a half ago is on how AI as a, strategy as a policy how it's operating on social media how it's operating on society how it's operating on espionage on data gathering how how it works how it operates and then how to how to make policies to counter it so each each topic I have picked is of that kind so with this background I can tell you snakes in the ganga uncovers, The behavioral algorithms and strategies of our opponents that have not been uncovered and written about before. It is not about coining a name. You know, I could call them snakes. I could call them whatever. It doesn't matter. The name is just a metaphor. It's just to get your attention. But the real discovery, the real originality in this is that Marxism, we think is a, not an American thing, but Marxism logic is the underlying algorithm Americanized as critical race theory and wokeism. Most Americans I talked to don't believe it, don't want to believe it because they don't want to believe that we are, we are become a Marxist country. But I have won many debates with well-known, well-established. American scholars in philosophy and social sciences and wokeism and all that in the past two, three months since I came out with this book. Because Marxism's basic tenets, which started in Europe, entered United States around World War II. Some of the European Marxists came to Columbia University and some came to Berkeley. And particularly one Herbert Marcuse, who came to Berkeley, Americanized the Marxism to fit into the ideas of race in this country because the civil rights was going on, the civil rights movement was going on. And he found that it was a very divided society racially, blacks, whites, Hispanics, etc. So he decided to apply Marxism to study all that. And he came up with what he didn't, call it the same thing, but we call it today. Like wokeism and critical race theory and all that. But he set in motion the fundamental adaptation of Marxism to the American cultural context. And then a Harvard Law School professor coined the term critical legal theory. And then from that came critical race theory. And from that came wokeism. So the Marxist origins are... Definitely there, And the chapter one of this book talks about just that, the Americanization of Marxism. My first project was not to write this book on India, which I'll come to in a moment. But my first project was to write a book called Breaking America. Like I'd written Breaking India, I wanted to write Breaking America, that this thing is now Breaking America. And that book is still in the process of being finalized. I have about 300 pages written. I summarized a little bit of it in Chapter One here in this book, but that full book called Breaking India will also come out. I then realized that even more urgently, one needs to figure, one needs to educate our people how this critical race theory has immediately has recently morphed into critical caste theory, and has become the new Breaking India. Hence, I call it Breaking India 2.0. So what has happened is, in my earlier Breaking India book, I introduced the concept of Afro-Dalits. It was still an experimental idea. They were taking Dalits and telling them that you are really Africans. And the non-Dalits are whites. And racism is how Indian society operates. And you are like blacks in India. And you should revolt like that. I wrote it in that book, but people didn't take it seriously. In hindsight, they should have. We could have nipped it in the bud, perhaps. But we didn't take it seriously. So now, the Afro Dalit has become reality. There are professors at Harvard. There are very senior people in the American Academy. There are people getting, with Pulitzer Awards, on the Oprah show, books which are New York Times' number one bestseller on this topic many of you don't know that but in my book i have chapter after chapter after chapter on this particular issue of how critical how caste is now considered the origin of racism it in fact originated american racism caste british learned caste in india and when they came to america they started using the caste logic applied it to blacks and so the origin of white Racism against blacks has to do with caste system of India, which they learned. And then after they learned it and turned it into race in this country, the Germans learned it against uh, again uh, and applied it to create the Holocaust against Jews. So caste is the culprit of universal racism and universal hatred. That's how serious this whole logic is. And our people haven't countered it. So because we haven't understood their algorithm. So that's the purpose of my job, of my book. It's not about some slick coinage of a term. There are people who go around saying, oh, this term so-and-so coined before, but they didn't know the logic. They're not discovering the algorithm behind it. If somebody in the 1800s used the term "indophobia," the point is there was no academic uh, Freudian psychoanalysis going on in the US Academy. There was no University of Chicago. There was no Wendy Doniger. The the things that we we are now talking about as the problems didn't even exist. So maybe the term was used in some other context. It's irrelevant for today. So uh, now in this book, explaining how the Americanization of Marxism uh, being applied to race has further gone and become Indianized. American racism has become Indianized into mapped on to caste. And the logic is that caste actually comes first and the racism comes as a result. So this is pretty serious stuff. Then there are organizations. Each, each of these things I'm telling you is a separate chapter. There are 22 chapters in the book. You can read any one separately. You don't have to read them in sequence. You don't have to read all the chapters. You can jump to chapter 4. You can jump to chapter 19 and it will be fine. Each chapter is a certain algorithm that you need to understand. Okay, and they're, 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 it's been written to be independent of each other. Now, besides Indian social structure being recharacterized and in a distorted way as racist, deep fundamental racist, they've also started applying American law on racism to indians in this country in this country people like you so there are there are more and more local level amendments to racism law which say that caste is also a form of racism harvard put it into their university bylaws and many many universities have adopted this which means that if if somebody says you are castist you're you favoring others of the same caste. You're Patel. You favor Patels. I can prove it in your in by doing a survey, or you are Brahmin and you favor favor other Brahmins or whatever whatever their idea is. Then that is grounds for litigation, prosecuting you under the laws of racism in this country. That is so serious because the racism laws are very serious. So being Vulnerable to American racism laws for being in favor of your particular community, your jati, whatever, is a whole new experience our people don't know. They have no idea what hit them. And there are lawsuits now starting in Silicon Valley uh, claiming that a particular company has uh, engaged in such conduct. And they hauled into federal court they have to defend themselves out of nervousness and fear in some companies indians are suspect because you know indian comes they've been told that because most americans don't know anything about this business so they believe whatever is told to them in a sensational way and generally the entry point is the hr department and in the hr department there is the dei diversity equity inclusion and those people are really looking for such ideas and such things because it gives them power so you go to these consultants go to the dei and give them a talk on on caste bias in america and they give them all this nonsense about the history of caste in india all completely bogus in chapter 6 of this book i've given a detailed rebuttal of all the claims they're making about caste so that we have some talking points we can rebut it we can talk back that's what chapter 6 is for it's a hundred page stand alone book by itself the history of indian social structure and a rebuttal to common biases now indians are on the defensive i just came back from silicon valley one of the one of the books that has come out from harvard by a harvard professor published by harvard university press says that iits are brahmanical structures to oppress Dalits very clearly. And it gives some logic in how British conspired with Brahmins to create engineering education. Then all engineering education has got this problem. IITs are the worst of the lot, but others also got this problem. And it gives you all this sort of logic. One of the silly arguments is that Brahmins don't like to work with their hands and the Dalits are good at working with their hands. And so in engineering, normally you should learn how to work with your hands also, not just theoretical. But in India, the IITs give more preference to theory of engineering and don't put much emphasis on working with your hands because this this way, the Brahmins will do better. And so the allegation that it's Brahmanical is correlated with the fact that, okay, a lot of the education is theory. Whereas, uh, and this disempowers, this is a, uh, oppress oppressiveness against Dalits. But the fact of the matter is, computer science by its nature is theoretical. And the reason there's a focus on computer science is not because it's Brahmanical, because there are jobs. It's a job oriented, wherever the careers are, the market is, that's the kind of education they are being given. So this author doesn't consider any of that but simply wants to make the case that IITs are racist because they are casteist. And this has taken root. This is now, uh, not because it's Harvard University Press publishing it, which is the most prestigious in the world, and it's a Harvard professor doing it, uh, and and it's taught in their curriculum. So now it's quoted in all the universities. It's normal and standard to talk about it. India's Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Chandrachud, has been quoting it. We have a video on that, where he's quoting this wokism, he's quoting this, uh, th- this is called an attack on meritocracy. The, the, what they are saying is that this business of meritocracy is a sham. Uh, when IITs say that we are a meritocracy, that is truly not ca- the case. Actually, they are casteist and they want to call it merit instead of, co- instead of, admitting their bias on caste they want to say that they are merit but that's a sham so meritocracy is also under attack in in this whole uh, new theory so what what i just told you is sort of like the first maybe 30% of the book which is the theoretical foundation the theoretical uh, what we've uncovered as the algorithms by which we are being attacked now in in this latest Breaking India, different from the previous Breaking India. Part two of the book actually uncovers something else. It shows that the the nest of snakes is Harvard. It's not just another university, it's really where the most vicious work of this kind is being done. And because it's Harvard and because it's uh, given a lot of credibility, People believe anything that comes out of Harvard, so it's pretty dangerous. And a big surprise is that Indian billionaires are funding it. So there's a chapter on Anand Mahindra and his center called Mahindra Humanities Center. There's another chapter on Lakshmi Mittal's South Asia Institute at Harvard. There's another chapter on Piramal and his center at Harvard. We discuss Bajaj family involvement, Tata's involvement, and so on. And of course, there's, this is a much bigger problem. We've only covered the big one, big example. So then we give a whole lot of evidence on how Indian billionaires have found it fashionable to go to Harvard and fund this kind of research, which is very anti-India. While in India, they're seen as big patriots, Deish getting awards being looked at like big you know icons of indian society while here they're doing this kind of work so we are calling them out and want them to respond in an amicable way we are calling them out we're not saying they're bad people we're not saying they're criminals it's their money and they can spend it however they want it's their right but if they are spending their money in a way and especially the name the association of their name because these are hindus the, that association of their name allows our enemies to weaponize, weaponize against us. It's a matter of concern. And just like they have the freedom to do what they want, and Harvard has the freedom to produce the research it wants, so also I also have the freedom to criticize them. That's all I'm doing. And it's they can say, hey, this is Mr. Malhotra. Thank you, but we don't believe in any of this. Go away. And that's fine. I'm, I, I've done my job bringing it out to public attention. Or they could say thank you for telling us. We didn't know. We were sleeping. We were too busy running our factories and making billions. And we didn't. We just wrote this check because we thought it's cool. And we took Harvard at face value. But now that you've told us, we'll take a look at it. Maybe they'll do that. We try, it'll, it remains to be seen. And some of it depends on public pressure from people like you. Because the more noise we make, that hey, billionaires, you should know what you are doing with your money and your name. And you should be more accountable. And the buck stops there with you. If you want to be famous and be in the good books of Harvard, maybe you'll get your kids admitted and maybe it's good for business. You'll get deals. You'll sit on a board or a prestigious committee and hobnob with... All the billionaires from America, all that is good stuff. But the price, the country shouldn't have to pay the price. So we need to have that conversation. So part two is entirely about the role of Indian billionaires in creating this critical caste theory. And all this business about, you know, uh, minorities being oppressed and uh, India is a sham democracy. I've quoted all the people. What Harvard is doing, which then ends up, in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, BBC, all this nonsense bias, where does it come from? Harvard has a Newman Center and Newman Pulitzer collaboration to train media. And they're funding a lot of media. They're bringing a lot of journalists and giving them all this information, giving workshops, having conferences. So not only do Harvard students learn these things, but Harvard trains think tanks. Harvard formulates policy. Harvard Kennedy School formulates policy, US government foreign policy towards India, policy on religious freedom. The US Commission on Religious Freedom gets a lot of its information from there because Harvard is such a big think tank. And the State Department gets a lot of, uh, you know, its people uh, who are Harvard-trained and a lot of of ideas in the American think tanks, Carnegie, Ford Foundation, all of these kind of things They have a huge amount from uh, you know from the Harvard influence, (coughs) Brookings, big Harvard influence. So the discovery of this ecosystem and its algorithms is what this book is about. It's not that I've coined some term and this is a slick term and all that. It's not about. Don't trivialize it because sometimes people trivialize. the deep research by saying, oh, he coined this term, because that, that's very superficial. It's the it's the understanding of how A causes B, which causes C, which causes D, and how all of these things result in this and that, what are the implications, the whole flowchart of the effects being produced, where they start, what are the premises. In other words, like the pathology of a disease, which is a very complex disease, before before you uh, the doctor before something happens to your body so many other things have been happening before before them and before. So it starts with lifestyle it starts with whatever it starts with genetic It starts with external germs coming whatever it is multiple factors so it's a very complex pathology that has to be understood by a medical expert in order to figure out what went wrong and then figure out how to treat it so if we want to look at it with that much rigor then this is the kind of work that's needed and that's lot of hard work so uh, the third part which is the final part of this book takes all of this material and puts it and uh, shows how it's entered india in india we have ashoka university which is mirroring harvard taking the worst things in harvard putting it there harvard has a lot of good things also harvard has good medical research Science, physics, engineering, these kind of things are good. STEM education is pretty good. But we're talking about these social sciences only. We're only talking about that. And that too, as it pertains to India. So Ashoka University is very proud that it is becoming the Harvard of India, but actually in a negative sense. And we have a whole chapter on Ashoka. And then there is Godridge Labs. And then there is Kriya University in the south. Then there is uh, Azim Premji has initiated some things. All these are separate chapters, and we are naming names. We are naming names. We are not talking in general terms that some people do this. Not like that. We are quoting exactly what these people are doing, and there are six, over sixteen hundred quoted references in this book. That's why it's a big book. The last three hundred pages consist of. 1600 references and notes and a hundred pages of bibliography. Okay. So this is like a legal document where all the evidence, all the testimony is in the book itself. You don't have to read it, but it's there in case you need it, in case you get into an argument and somebody says, prove it. Well, the proof is there. Not only that, we knew that our opponents will start deleting websites. They will start deleting some of their youtubes and they already have but guess what we got a copy of everything so we made a, everything i put a whole team together whose job was they spent four or five months they downloaded they got screenshots they made a copy of every youtube video that we're quoting and we built a cloud where we can prove to you everything that we are quoting Because we got a copy and we don't depend on whether they wiped it out or not. They can clean it out, but we still got a copy. So this is a very solid piece of research, a very serious piece of research. The book can be read at three levels. Most of you should just read level one, which means you should read the introduction. And then the one page overview of every chapter. That's it. That's all you need to do. You will understand the entire argument. You will understand all the talking points. You will understand immediately how to diagnose when somebody is involved in this against us. And you will understand how to talk back. Level 2 is you can go into any chapter and read the whole chapter in detail. Whatever chapter you like. So if you want to read chapter 4, that will tell you about the attack on IITs. There is a certain chapter that will tell you uh, what Mahindra is doing at Harvard. There is another chapter that will tell you what Lakshmi Mithal is doing at Harvard. There is another chapter that will tell you what Ashoka University is doing. Like that. They are all separate, separate chapters. And they are not dependent on each other. They are pretty much written independently. So you read, you do a deep dive only where you are interested. And then level 3 is a scholar who wants to go to the back of the book and read all the endnotes, all the references, look up all the evidence and that's the kind, that's the purpose who wants to then take the book even further and develop more research. So it's written for, it's also research, written as a research handbook, a reference guide. And that's why it's big, because we want it all in one place. Uh, and uh, don't let the size uh, scare you. As I said, you just read at level one, and that'll be, it'll change your life, it'll change your thinking. So with that, I should close and maybe take some questions.